If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John, and we have seen Jesus arrested in the garden. We've seen him bound before Caiaphas, the high priest, and we've now known that Jesus has made his way all the way before Pontius Pilate. What I want you to know is the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning records one of the darkest days in human history. When you think about dark days over the last 100, 150 years, you might be able to rattle off several. We've had a couple of world wars. We've had Vietnam, Korean War. We've had the horrors of the Holocaust. One of the most poignant moments in my trip to Israel was going into this place called the Yad Vashim, which is the Holocaust Museum. And I don't know if any of you have ever been there, but that place will silence you as you see the darkness that that museum exposes from World War II. But when you look at all those moments in human history, what I want you to know is what we're going to look at this morning is actually a darker day. My prayer for us is this is that as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, that we will see the darkness that's portrayed here as John writes his gospel, but that we will also, through it, see the beauty of the grace of God. Would you please stand to your feet with me as we honor the reading of God's Word in John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, 
you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, please? God, we give you thanks and praise that we can gather together, open Bibles in hand, and hear from you. Would you please speak to us this morning? Would you remove distraction and bring your word to bear by the power of your spirit on every mind and heart listening to this? God, would you remove distraction? And as we hear from you this morning, Lord, would you help us not only to be hearers of your word, but would you help us be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can organize the passage of Scripture in front of us this morning into two categories. Pilate is going to make two strategic attempts to try to get Jesus off the hook. We saw last week that Pilate tried to use the Passover and a tradition with the Passover to release Jesus, but this backfired on, on Pilate. Because instead of asking for Jesus, who did they ask for? Let's try that again. Who did they ask for? Barabbas. Barabbas. Ask for Barabbas. A robber, a murderer, an insurrectionist. And so Pilate tries two strategic attempts to try to get Jesus off the hook. The first thing we notice that Pilate does is he tries to show that Jesus is not really a threat to Roman or Jewish authority. And so the way Pilate does this is he has Jesus delivered to be humiliated. The Bible tells us in chapter 19, verse 1, that Pilate has Jesus flogged. The flogging that Jesus would have received would have been incredibly painful. It was designed to not only inflict maximum damage, but to humiliate a person. When a flogging occurred, a person was tied up to a pole so that their body would be extended. And the beating they received went from their neck all the way down to the back of their thigh. The whip that the Roman soldiers would have used had woven thongs in it, and in each of these thongs there were metal balls that were designed to cause deep bruises with every lash. Around these metal balls were shards of bone and glass and rock that were designed that as the the whip was removed, that flesh was removed with it, with every strike. By the time a beating like this was finished, Many people died. Many people didn't survive a Roman beating. But if they did, you can count on the fact that they lost a massive amount of blood 
And many people would have had vital organs exposed because of how intense the beating was. And if that wasn't enough, Pilate, his soldiers, then take Jesus and begin to mock him. They make a crown of thorns and twist it and put it on his head and no doubt blood gushed down Jesus' face with that. They, they put a purple robe around him and began to, to mock him and act like he was a king and bow before him. When this humiliation was over in, among the soldiers, Pilate brings Jesus out to be humiliated in front of the public. Pilate marches Jesus out, crown of thorns on his head, purple robe on his shoulders. And he says, look guys, I find no guilt in this person. Behold the man. And when Pilate says this, what he's saying is, look what we've done. This guy is no threat to you or to me. Look at what we've reduced him to. And what Pilate's hoping happens is in bringing Jesus forward in this way, he's hoping this calms the anger and the fears that the Jewish authorities have who are before him. But the Bible tells us that no such thing happens. Instead, the crowd begins to shout, crucify him, crucify him. And at this point, Pilate's had it. He says, look, deal with this yourself. This man is innocent. He's committed no crime worthy of death. And then the Jews inform him of the deepest reason for their concern. They tell Pilate that Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. Now, when we hear that term today in 2017, that doesn't mean very much to us. But you have to understand, to New Testament listeners, when you talk about being someone's son, you're emphasizing their likeness to their father. So when someone was called the son of someone, they were emphasizing their connection to the father. The way we would say it today is like father, like son. So when the Son of God title is used in the New Testament, it's emphasizing the fact that Jesus is made of the same stuff as his Father. He's fully God. And the Jews say, because he's claimed to be fully God, he must die. Look in your Bibles at verse 8 to see how Pilate responds to this whole exchange. The Bible says that when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. See, Pilate sees this growing crowd getting angrier and angrier, shouting, crucify, crucify. And when he hears that the concern that the Jews have is very deep and embedded in what they believe, he realizes this is not going to go away with just a smile and a handshake. These people are getting angrier and angrier. So Pilate makes a second attempt to try to get Jesus off the hook. He brings Jesus from being out in the public in front of this crowd, and he brings him back into his palace headquarters where he can have a private conversation with Jesus. Pilate asks Jesus, where are you from? A logical question. 
He's just been told that this guy is God. So he wants to know, are you from heaven? Are you from God? And the Bible tells us that Jesus remains silent. You see, Jesus has already told Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. Pilate's frustrated with Jesus' silence. And he says to him, Don't you know that I have the authority to kill you or the authority to set you free? And I don't know if you can picture this in your mind, but I picture Jesus kind of looking down and then Pilate says that and his eyes rise to meet Pilate's. And he looks at Pilate eye to eye and says, you have no authority that my father hasn't granted to you. In fact, you're about to commit a sin by handing me over to be killed, but even the one who gave you to me, the high priest, has committed a greater sin. He should know better, being of Jewish origin. But just so you know, all of this is happening because my father has put this plan into motion from eternity past. For whatever reason, after Pilate hears this, he becomes convinced of Jesus' innocence even more. He knows Jesus shouldn't die. He's not done anything worthy of death. So he goes back in front of this crowd, mostly made of Jews, most likely, and he tells them he's innocent. But with every attempt that Pilate makes to exonerate Jesus, the crowd gets angrier and angrier. They're shouting, crucify Jesus. And as this exchange goes back and forth, finally the crowd and some of the leaders tell Pilate that if he doesn't do this, he's no friend of Caesar. Now, if you didn't pick up on this, this is code for this man is going to bring about a rebellion and an insurrection. And if you don't take him out, that's what's going to happen. In essence, the Jews are threatening a revolt during Passover when thousands of Jews would have been in Jerusalem. There's no way the Roman authorities would have had the army to repel that kind of rebellion. The Bible tells us that when Pilate hears these words, he goes and sits in a special place, a stone-paved kind of chair that Roman prefects and governors would sit in to pronounce judgment. And from this spot, Pilate again brings Jesus out, crown on his head, robe on his shoulders, and says, Behold your king. They go back and forth, and Pilate finally asks, Shall I crucify your king? And notice how the Jews respond in verse 15, and how this narrative concludes. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Pilate sentences Jesus to death. Here's the question I want to talk about this morning. What's the point that John's making to us in this account? What is John 
trying to tell us about Jesus and these events as we go to the cross? Here's the answer. Despite Pilate's attempts and Jesus' obvious innocence, our Savior is condemned. Despite Pilate's really three attempts, Passover celebration, showing that he's not a threat, and finally trying to exercise Roman authority, despite all of this, and despite the passage obviously showing time after time that Jesus has done nothing worthy of death, he's still condemned. And I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning just thinking carefully about this statement and its significance for our lives. I want to talk for a few moments about Pilate's attempts and why Jesus was condemned in spite of those. And I also want to talk about Jesus' innocence and how he was condemned in spite of that. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus was condemned despite Pilate's attempts. Roman authority is no match for God's plans and purposes. That's what this passage is saying. When we see Pilate fail time after time after time, what we're not meant to see is that Pilate is just at the whims of this Jewish crowd that's growing out of control. No. We're meant to see that all of this is from the hand of God. The reigning superpower of the world at the time is no match for the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is why Jesus makes the point to speak to Pilate. In fact, the only recorded speech of Jesus in this account is when he looks Pilate in the face and says, you have no authority that's not been given to you by God. And let me tell you why that's important for you this morning. When we read these accounts and we see God moving his plans and purposes forward, what we remember is that all of this is a part of God's plan to pursue his people. John 19 is an account as a part of a long line of God's pursuance of his people. From Genesis 3.15, when God promises that the seed of the woman, that is Jesus, will defeat the seed of the serpent, all the way to John 19, when we see God moving Romans and Jewish authorities out of the way, we see that we have a God who is pursuing us. When we see God moving obstacle after obstacle out of the way, we know that we're watching God come running after his people to save them. We're seeing the lengths God is going to to provide forgiveness and redemption for humanity. One of the more acute moments in the Bible where we see this kind of pursuance illustrated is in the, man, in the life of a man named Hosea. Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he was prophesying in a time when the nation of Israel was disobedient. They were rejecting God's authority. 
And God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you to take a wife, but not just any wife. I want you to take a wife who's prone to promiscuity. I don't know about you guys, but that would be a tall order for me. Let's sign up for someone who's potentially going to be unfaithful to me. But that's exactly what God asks of Hosea. Hosea goes and takes a woman named Gomer to be his wife. Gomer is known in the community to be that kind of a woman, but Hosea has high hopes that their marriage and their bond together will move her away from that kind of lifestyle that she's been living. God begins to bless their marriage. They have a great beginning. They have children. But as they start to have their second child and third child, the couple begins to grow apart. And Hosea begins to wonder about the faithfulness of his wife. Finally, after the third child was weaned and more self-sufficient, Gomer leaves Hosea for another man. You can hear some of Hosea's friends coming in saying, look, it's better this way. You knew that this was going to happen. It's better to happen now than when the kids are older. You can hear people talking to him about this. Some time passes, and Hosea hears that Gomer's lover has left her. And in order to make things right, Gomer has sold herself into slavery. Apparently she had some outstanding debt. She had some problems. It was common. It was customary for people to sell themselves as a way of making a debt right. Hosea, still her husband, hears this. And again, you can imagine what people would say, his friends. Well, she's finally getting what she deserves. Look at her horrible decisions and the things that she's done to you. Here's justice, Hosea. Your wife is now being sold into slavery. But Hosea doesn't respond that way. Hosea begins searching for Gomer. He begins looking for her. And one of the most beautiful moments in the Bible, Hosea finds his wife when she's about to be sold into slavery tired, used up, disheveled, selling herself to other people to try to make ends meet, Hosea decides he's going to buy back his wife. And every obstacle that comes in his way, Hosea pursues Gomer, even among friends' advice even when her unfaithfulness is obvious to everyone, he goes after her and buys her back and brings her home and cleans her up and brings her back as his wife. This is a picture of the way God pursues you and the way God pursues me. This is the God that we worship. We worship a God who pursues, runs after his people. And I would say it this way. The same God pursuing us in John 19 is the same God pursuing us today. So do something for me, would you? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a a believer... I want you for a moment just to think about 
the person who told you about Jesus? Can you think about that person for a moment? I want you to get their face in your mind's eye. For some of you, that would be your parents who told you about Christ from a young age. Others of you, that might be a friend or a neighbor that invited you to church or somebody that loved on you and invested in you. Others still, that might be a pastor or a teacher at church that just loved on you and and told you the gospel. Still others, that might be a faithful grandparent. I am a fan of faithful grandparents who invest in their grandchildren with the gospel. Now, once you get that person's face in your mind's eye, here's what I want you to remember. That person who told you the gospel was a mighty instrument in God's hand, but never forget that person is a reminder to you that God pursues you. He came after you. It may have been through a person. It may have been through a neighbor or a family member or a parent or a grandparent. But God pursues his people. Those of you today that may not be Christians, you're listening to this or you're sitting here today because someone invited you and you don't know Christ. I want you to know that if you're here, there's a great chance that God is pursuing you today. That God's making it possible for you to sit and listen about his faithfulness and his love and his kindness and his mercy that he offers you today. My prayer is that we would recognize that the God we worship is a God that pursues, runs after, knocks aside obstacles to get us the forgiveness and healing that we so desperately need. Now, one of the ways we see the beauty of this kind of pursuance is by considering the second part of the statement that I gave you a few moments ago. Yes, our Savior is condemned despite Pilate's attempts. But secondly, I want you to notice that our Savior is condemned despite his obvious innocence. I want you to think with me for a moment about Jesus' innocence. and what he endures in this passage. Think about, number one, the fact that Jesus endures incredible physical suffering. Um, A few weeks ago, I had the privilege to go to Israel, to go to the Holy Land for 10 days. And several of you have asked me, what what was some of the more powerful moments of your trip there? And without hesitation, I can tell you that standing on the floor where Jesus was flogged was some of the most powerful moments of that entire trip. Because I can take you to the place where we can see the original floor where the soldiers flogged Jesus. And when I look at that floor, one of the things that came to my mind is that our Savior was beaten so badly that his blood would have filled the crevices in that floor. He suffered in a way that is unimaginable to most of us through that beating. Jesus endured incredible physical suffering. But Jesus, number two, also endured emotional suffering. 
one of the mistakes that we can make when we think about Christ's suffering is to forget that Jesus is fully human. He experiences emotions, pain, heartache, loss. And when those soldiers begin to mock Jesus, when Jesus is paraded before a waiting and watching public, there was emotional distress and pain that our Savior felt. Most notably, though, what Jesus felt in his emotions was the weight of the sins of the world resting on his shoulders. There's an emotional suffering that our Savior went through through that. Thirdly, we also know that Jesus endured the injustice of being condemned for the truth. Do you remember what they said about Jesus, the Jews, why he had to die? They said he claimed to be the Son of God. Well, I have a newsflash for you this morning. Jesus is the Son of God. He is. And so when they bring these charges before him, he's being accused and condemned for the truth. I don't know if you've ever had the unfortunate experience of the truth ringing in hollow ears, but it's very painful to sit down with somebody eye level and say, I love you, and I'm telling you this because it's the truth, and if you don't listen, it's going to hurt you. And for somebody to get angry because of the truth. And as you tell the truth more, it makes them angry, and you realize the truth is ringing in hollow ears. They're not really hearing what I have to say. Jesus endured the injustice of being condemned to die for the truth. But fourthly and finally, we also see that Jesus endured betrayal at the hands of his own people. Jesus was betrayed first by Judas. Second, he was betrayed by Peter. And now, he's being handed over by the very people who should have been singing his praises. The Jews, who had the Old Testament, monotheistic, one God who's bringing them a redeemer. They're looking for him. And when Jesus shows up, they're the ones that oppose him the most and turn him over to die. In fact, their hatred of Jesus is so intense is so white hot, they feign allegiance to Caesar out of spite. Look back at your Bibles. Verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now remember this. Of all the Roman subjects in this season of history, of all of the countries Rome conquered, none of them hated them more than the Jews. 
They hated them. They wanted nothing to do with their authority. And so when they say that we have no king but Caesar, it is purely out of spite and anger and hatred for Jesus with which they feign allegiance to Caesar to get what they want. Now it's at this point that I tell you that when we consider what Jesus endures, bodily, emotional, injustice of truth being his condemnation, and betrayal at the hands of his people, Jesus endured much in this passage. But here's what I want you to know. The reason I believe this is one of the darkest days in human history is because though Jesus endured a lot in this passage, it was not enough to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin. What Jesus endures in this passage, though awful, though incredibly painful at every level, it's not enough to pay for my sin and it's not enough to pay for your sin. Turn that around. My sin is so serious that all the suffering Jesus endures in this passage is not enough to deal with my problem. John tells us that much of this happened around the time of the Passover. This is his way of reminding us that Jesus is the Passover lamb that has to go and die for our sins. My sin is so serious, so great, that Jesus is going to have to offer his life. The point is that we have an outstanding debt, but though this suffering is great, it doesn't cover. Right now in America, um, we're told that the average American family has $16,000 worth of credit card debt. $16,000. Our federal government's not doing much better. Um, They have over $13 trillion worth of debt. Had somebody come up to me after the first service and correct me and say it was closer to 20. 13 trillion, 20 trillion, what's a few trillion among friends? It's a lot of money. European Union's not that far behind us. They hover around the 10 trillion mark as far as dollars go. And if you look at the last season of political history, the last kind of cycle we've had, the debt was a common theme that arose often, right? Because we're telling our politicians, I can't run my home that way. And if you keep overspending us, we're not going to be able to survive as a nation. We've got to rein in spending. Credit card debt per families often shows us that we want to live a lifestyle that we can't afford. Debt is everywhere in our society. But I wonder if we realize that our debt before God is greater than the debt that the current federal government of the United States of America has. Do you know that our spiritual debt is greater than any financial debt any country could ever incur? Wait a minute, Spencer. You're saying my debt before God is bigger than $13 trillion? Yes, 
Because while that's a lot of money, you know, if we get disciplined enough and our elected politicians do what they're supposed to do, we can pay down the debt, right? We can do that. It might take a long time, but it could happen. It's not like that with God. You can't pay your debt off on your own. Your sin and my sin is so serious, we can't pay it back. One thought in our minds of anger or hatred towards another person or one impure thought that comes into my head is enough before God to put me at odds and to put me under his wrath and rebellion. One bitter attitude, one hateful feeling I feel for someone else is enough for me to stand condemned before God. And one harsh word, one word of insult or injury that we offer to someone else, that sin is enough, just one, to put me under God's authority, His wrath and judgment. The truth is that once we sin, and every one of us have, we cannot in any way pay back the debt that we owe to God. One of the reasons I think we sing Amazing Grace half-heartedly is because we have no idea what God has saved us from. If you want to see and behold the beauty of the grace that he's given us, understand the seriousness of our problem. Can I tell you one of the reasons I think we misunderstand our problem? I think the reason we don't see the seriousness of sin is because we misunderstand that fundamentally what sin does is it deceives us from the truth. Sin makes me think I'm okay when I'm not. Imagine with me for a moment a terminal disease that begins to ravage humanity and one of its effects on people is it makes them think they're healthy when they're not. So this person has this disease, they contract it, and they begin to have symptoms that show that they've got a problem. But part of this disease is it makes them oblivious and blind to these symptoms that are showing up in their lives. So they could be throwing up or losing weight or losing dexterity things and all of these issues, their hair begins to fall out. And though all these things are happening, this disease, its effect on their brain is to make them think that they're still okay, that they're still healthy. Can you imagine how painful that would be to go and talk to a family member who's experiencing that kind of disease, to sit by their bed and to plead with them, you're dying. Look at your body. You're wasting away. And for them to say, it's just a little cough. No big deal. What are you talking about? I'll be out of this bed in no time. How difficult would it be to try to convince someone that they're dying when the very disease they has have convinced them otherwise. Can I tell you something today? Everybody look at me. You have such a disease. You have that kind of a disease in your heart. Maybe not physically, but spiritually speaking, what sin does is it deceives us into thinking that we're healthy spiritually when we are not. 
So some of you this morning, if you don't know Christ, I would plead with you to turn from your sin and trust Jesus for salvation. I plead with you. Repent. Turn from living your life for yourself and trust what Jesus has done for you. He died for you. He rose again. But some of you will look at me and say, I'm fine. I'm healthy. I'm whole. What are you talking about? And what I'm telling you this morning, everybody listen to me. What I'm telling you this morning is if you think that, it's the result of sin in your life. Sin not only destroys us, it deceives us. It blinds us from seeing the truth. So when, when you talk to family members or friends or coworkers that don't know Christ and you explain the gospel to them and they say, I'm fine, I'm great. Remember that what you're seeing is the effect of a disease that blinds people into thinking that they're okay when they're not. One of the great truths that we can take from this and remember to encourage our hearts is that though this disease works in our lives, if you know Jesus Christ, you can experience real freedom. You can experience God counteracting the effects of deception. And can I tell you this morning that I am such a person I am someone who's not just been forgiven of my past. I'm someone who God, I'm seeing in my life today, God continuing to provide healing and grace and forgiveness in the present. Just this last year, one of the things that God's done in my life is he's given me some freedom and some real victory in an area of my life that I've struggled with for a long time. Struggled with it for a long time. And God, through uh, targeting that sin and, and accountability and prayer and encouragement, God's given me a measure of victory in that particular area of my life. But can I tell you what happens? When God peels back a layer of sin in our lives, do you know what's done in my life? It's revealed some ugliness and some problems under the surface that I didn't know was there. The reason sin is so dangerous is because even for believers, it keeps us blind to seeing what's really going on in our lives. So here's the question I want to ask you in closing. Do you see the seriousness of your sin? Do you see how deadly sin really is in your life? I want to do something as we close this morning. I want to try to guide you through a time of just considering and wrestling with the seriousness of your sin. And I want to try to remind us of the beauty of what Jesus has given us. Would you please bow with me just for a moment? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want for a moment